1: With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word brescher, meaning digger. Hello everybody, welcome along. It's another edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast and it's great to have you with me. I'm James, taking you through as ever. And before we get into the very special guest today, thank you very much indeed to tvsportsblog.com for their continued support of the Cricket Badger Podcast. Give them a follow please on Twitter at TVSportsBlog. Thanks as well for all of your listens and your nice comments on the podcast over the last few weeks. That's much appreciated. And this is another one that I'm sure you will enjoy. Duncan Hamilton, author extraordinaire, joins me on this edition of the podcast. And we talk about his book, One Long and Beautiful Summer, A Short Elegy for Red Bull Cricket. It's a continuation 10 years on from his book, A Last English Summer. And spoiler alert, Duncan shares very much the same opinions of me in terms of the 100 and the importance of county cricket and Red Bull cricket. So if you are a county cricket lover this podcast is for you and this book by Duncan Hamilton is very very much for you as well just a couple of little reviews that this book has got from the spectator Hamilton's book is a marvel I'm not sure he could write a dull sentence if he tried the cricketer Duncan Hamilton has written some of the best books about sport in recent years all lovers of cricket will love this book you could say that Hamilton has done it again And in the mail on Sunday, brilliantly expresses the passion that millions like him, in pursuit of happiness and belonging, feel for the beautiful game. Simply magnificent. Now it's fair to say Duncan's got a little bit of a history in churning out Fantastic books. We talk about those as well as we go through. It's not just about the year he spent in 2019 putting this book together. He's won three William Hill Sports Book of the Year awards. He's been nominated on another four occasions for that prestigious award. He's claimed two British Sports Book Awards. And his biography of the Chariots of Fire runner, Eric Liddell, For the Glory, was a New York Times bestseller. He was also responsible for Johnny Bairstow's autobiography, A Clear Blue Sky. And on this edition of the Cricket Badger podcast, it is a great pleasure to welcome the man that I used to know when he was sports editor of the Yorkshire Post and I was working for Yorkshire County Cricket Club as the media manager. Put your hands together, roll out the red carpet. It's award-winning author, Duncan Hamilton.
0: It's the Badger star. My time, really, apart from the fact that I've not
1: been
0: anywhere hasn't really changed someone certainly a superb picture of a kind of 13th century scribe sitting on a table with a kind of <laughs> quill pen it's the same picture over three things writer before lockdown writer during lockdown writer after lockdown
1: yeah i, I must um, i must admit i had some when it when it first started i had all good intentions i've, I've always fancied writing a stage play and I was going to do that, and I got about five scenes through it, and I stuck it, I stuck it down for a couple of days, which turned into two weeks, which turned until now, basically. So that's that's got no further.
0: Yeah, I think it might be some time before we're all back to normality. I've decided that I'm not going to go on public transport until I don't have to wear a face mask. So that will kick me out of circulation until about twenty thirty, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I, I'm I'm effectively still in lockdown um, because I, I I do some commentary work for um, a couple of um, companies in Leeds, and they've set us up so we can do that from home i'm basically sitting on my sofa commentating on football and cricket which is okay um doing a bit of writing which is just like you sitting on the sofa and with a laptop on my knee and and doing that so it's kind of strange but i've actually part part of me has actually quite enjoyed lockdown in a way it's um doing doing stuff with far less deadlines and far less less pressure on life
0: well there's far less pressure on life because you don't feel compelled to actually go anywhere yeah (laughs) Uh, there was a great piece that David Aranovich did in The Times, where he said, you know, that you kind of book some tickets for a concert six months in advance, and you think, great, I can't wait to go. Then when it comes to a week before the concert, you're actually half hope it's going to be cancelled, just so you don't have to go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we've all had those thoughts, haven't we, I think. It's, um... <laughs>
0: we have, yeah. I mean, I'm not certainly not missing my usual treks down to London and, and having to have meetings and things like that. It's, it's been an absolute blessing. I mean, I've obviously missed going into Leeds and doing one or two things that yeah. I would normally do, like go to the Italian restaurant and that kind of thing. But I really haven't been out of the village and since I came back from Leeds to do the Lit Festival, which was on March the 8th. Yeah. But... Picked up a suit that day. I picked up a new suit. By the time I get to wear it, it'll either be out of <laughs> out of date terribly out of fashion, or well, frankly, I'll be too fat to fit into it.
1: So. <laughs> yeah,
0: I kind of bought it from T.M. Lewin, who have actually since gone out of business,
1: very sadly. So you couldn't take it back even if you wanted to?
0: No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, It's it's a funny old time. I mean, the one thing I have missed, is probably common to both of us, is, is the cricket because until last week when it came on from the GS Bowl, all the cricket talk was nostalgia and looking back at old things and picking our best 11s and all that kind of stuff. There was no live action to talk about, and that's one of the main things isn't it selections and talking points and all that kind of stuff
0: i wasn't working on cricket this summer but i was certainly going to go to some matches and i kind of put it into my head i was going to go and watch essex play at chelmsford and of course that came and went and i was already booked up and hotel was booked everything was booked to go to scarborough for the roses match i had to cancel there and to buy with you, i doubt i'll see a ball bold and less men's bowl bowl i presume
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll get into recording the podcast, shall we? Uh, And I'll introduce you to my uh, my listeners. Duncan Hamilton, award-winning author and the author of One Long and Beautiful Summer, a short elegy for Red Bull cricket. I mean, I don't know if you know what I've been up to over the last couple of years, Duncan. I've been commentating and writing and doing things around cricket and also set up Atopos The 100 on Twitter, which got quite vocal last summer when The 100 was being muted and a lot of people were talking about its effect on the game and uh, I think most fans were were against it and that in a way was the catalyst for your book wasn't it that that awful word the hundred the phrase the hundred um drove you to actually really appreciate county cricket and to try and soak it in for a summer
0: yeah well 10 years ago i wrote a book called a last english summer which is essentially arguing that white ball cricket was going to proliferate to such an extent that it would start to squeeze out red ball cricket, not only in terms of the county championship, but even in terms of the amount of people who went to a kind of test match, really. Mm. I remember um, last year, for example, I went to the last day of the Headingley Test by pure chance. I managed to get a ticket at nine o'clock that morning and I was sitting in my seat at five past ten. But then I came back that evening, having watched this fantastic finale, which no one who was there will ever forget, and I switched on Sky Sports, and they were showing the West Indies-India test match from Antigua, and frankly, I could have introduced myself to everybody who was there in probably five minutes, and so we are so far the only country, really, which consistently uh, attracts very good crowds for test matches. At the time that I wrote *A Last English Summer*, I think people were a bit sceptical about the fact that cricket would change so quickly. But I did imagine that um, that it would happen within about probably 15 years. I didn't think it would happen in kind of 10. Um, And so, when the hundred was about to kind of launch, I thought to myself, "Well, I'll have to go back and do a little kind of bridge towards uh, uh, from *A Last English Summer* into." the kind of what could be the last season before things really kind of revolutionised. And so that's why I did the book, really. And it was just a kind of meander around places where I hadn't been 10 years before, with the exception of Scarborough. And um, it was just one of those really lovely summers where all you do is sit around and watch cricket
1: that's not a bad way to spend the summer is it and I I think you're very much like me in terms I mean I've read the first couple of chapters I haven't had time to read any more of it and uh, you know really well written and uh, and congratulations on the book but I think from a from a standpoint of where you think about cricket I I just love the fact that four-day cricket five-day cricket red ball cricket you have to devote time to it that's part of the deal isn't it you invest a little bit of time your own time and energy there may be a couple of sessions here and there that don't necessarily float your boat that much but by the time you get to an end of a really good four day or five day um, cricket match you've invested yourself emotionally in the situation and you are rewarded for that if it's an exciting finish like the heading the game or you know not all games finish like that obviously but you are rewarded for your patience for your your investment in that game a T20 match is a little bit more like a TV advert or something like that. There's some really good ones that are entertaining, but instantly forgettable to a degree.
0: Yes, I think you're absolutely right, James. I mean, I would say two things to that. I think the perfect example was last season where I went to Scarborough to watch Yorkshire play Surrey. And at lunchtime on the final day, you thought it would be a, a, a draw. Surrey suddenly collapsed and Yorkshire won the game with about six minutes to spare. And as I say in the book, the silence around Scarborough at that particular point was like the old-fashioned silence you got in a library once, where people used to say, shush, if uh, somebody coughed. I think the thing with something like 20, 20 cricket, which I don't, I mean, I will watch it at home, I don't tend to go to the games, because I prefer, to be honest with you, not to sit next to people who just generally want to go and actually drink, as opposed to watching any of the cricket. But what I think about 20, 20 cricket is that it's just rather like going to a football match you know you're going to be there for two, two and a half hours, and then you go home. And as you say, I think the kind of beauty about the four-day game or the five-day game is not only the fact that you're able to watch the kind of cricket, but I think the difficulty of the Red Bull game just enjoys the architecture of the kind of ground or the atmosphere or the way that it is quite leisurely so that in between overs you can read a book or you can read a newspaper or you can wander over and speak to your friend and then of course you've got lunch and you've got lunch and you've got tea and so it's the whole process it is much more than the actual game itself.
1: You've done a really nice little piece for a magazine I'm involved in County Cricket Matters. Annie Annie Chave is uh, the driving force of this these days it's the where opposed the 100 has kind of evolved to, because we wanted to not be negative, really. We wanted to try and celebrate county cricket, and uh, that's where County Cricket Matters uh, came from. And you've done a really nice little couple of uh, pages in that, uh, tackling the, the melancholia is the title of your piece. And you refer to one of the things you, you bring up in the book as well, which was you had some advice from John Arlott about when you were feeling a bit uh, down in the, in the middle of winter, um, how you would kind of revive yourself.
0: Yes, I mean I've uh, uh, I mean I've always collected cricket books ever since I became fascinated by the game and I've lost count of how many books I've got now thousands upon thousands and I always like during the absolute dead of winter. And I suppose that to me is kind of January when, the, when um, Christmas is over and it does feel an extraordinary long time until the seasons start. And I'll go and take down a kind of book that I particularly like, perhaps something by January, perhaps something by Neville Cardis or Robertson Glasgow or Ray Robertson or, or just basically anybody like that and just read a few paragraphs or a page and I'll just turn the pages at random. And I was quite lucky because I came across Edmund... Edmund Blunden's cricket country, which is a book I'd half forgotten really, and I hadn't read for so long. And the thing that I remembered about it, above all, was that Blunden wrote it during the war, during the Second World War. Mm. And he was a cricket fanatic. I mean, he became, i mean, he was a famous poet, but he was an absolute cricket fanatic. And he was writing in uh, between 1942 and 44, essentially uh, about his fears that he wouldn't see cricket any again. And I said in the original copy of the book that I was rather concerned that having written it and sort of evoked London in it, that he was writing during a war and I was just writing because this kind of competition had come out of nowhere and kind of might spoil the county championship. Then, of course, the um, virus hit. And so it seemed a little kind of less flippant than it sort of did. And I did wonder whether or not I should carry on and publish the book because at that particular time, certainly at the begin, certainly by the end of March and the beginning of April, everybody was more concerned about their safety and, and the safety of their loved ones than they were, obviously, with whether or not Essex were playing Somerset. But I think the more, the kind of more that's got on and the way that cricket's come sort of back in the, the past week, that I'm really pleased that I did go ahead with it. <laughs>
1: Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look and give them a follow on Twitter, at tvsportsblog. There's a beautiful line that um, Blunden wrote, wasn't there, that the, you include in the article. You arrive early, even earlier than you meant, and you feel a little guilty at the thought of the day you propose to deliver up to sheer luxury. And I think that is a, it's a cracking line, that, because I think everybody's done that. Even when I was working in cricket um, for Yorkshire, I used to arrive at work half an hour earlier than I should do, just so I could kind of sit there and look around the ground and soak it all in. And I, I just think everybody's done that. Just escapism, isn't it? The fact that you go and sit at a cricket ground and you know you're going to be there all day. And you effectively know that you're free to do whatever you like. You, you can up and go if you want to. And you can see if you're at Scarborough, you can walk down to the sea and then come back. And you've probably not missed a lot, but it still feels great. And I, I just think that's the, the beauty of county cricket is that you can dip in and dip out, and you are free to do whatever you like. But generally speaking, you sit there and you transfix transfixed by it.
0: I think that line of Edmund London's really, really could have been written yesterday. Yeah. It could have been written this afternoon, because I think it does apply to anybody who loves county cricket. And it, in the dorses, I suppose, a little bit, what I said previously, where it's not only just the game that's important, it's where the game is played, and it's the aesthetic beauty of the game while it's being played and I think that's what London was really referring to and also I suppose that for an awful lot of us and I certainly include myself in this, that that's what kind of drew us to cricket in the first place we were fascinated enough to want to go and watch it and once we got there and we saw these figures in kind of beautiful settings we thought well this is the game for
1: us absolutely I've said on the podcast before but I, I think my first game of cricket was down in Canterbury and I was seven years old and I was taking along and my family weren't quite sure if I was old enough to go because they were worried that I might be restless and what have you. And it was a John Player League game and I sat there and I never moved a muscle. So much so that the two old women in front of me at the interval got up and bought me some fruit pastels to reward me for my patience. I actually looked at them a little bit querulously when they gave me these sweets. I didn't obviously turn them down. I was being rewarded for something I was enjoying, which seemed to me to be very, very strange indeed. But I can remember the smells. I can remember everything from that first game of cricket I went to. I just immediately fell in love with it. I've asked a, a couple of recent guests actually on the podcast why did you fall in love with cricket? I mean, I'll ask that of you now and it's a massive question and we could probably do four hours on it but in a nutshell, Duncan Hamilton, why did you fall in love with the game?
0: I think it was the subtlety of the game actually and the fact that, you, that, that there were so many different disciplines within it so that it. If- somebody wasn't batting well, you knew that it was generally because somebody was bowling very well. When I started watching fielding obviously wasn't as kind of great as it is now. I'm talking about the very late 60s and the early 70s but you could still get an awful lot of pleasure about somebody fielding the ball too. I mean, I I watched all my early cricket generally at Trent uh, Bridge and of course Derek Randall was in the covers and anyone who saw Derek Randall field you would know that it was worth paying to get in simply to
1: watch him. Derek Randall has come up on my podcast I reckon five or six times over over lockdown, because he, exactly that because he just left a mark on people, didn't he? And, he? and people still thinking about his his play even now.
0: Yes, and I think it's just the way generally that. Again, I think I was fortunate to be only a shilling bus ride away from Trent Bridge, which is. Still, along with Scarborough, my favorite ground. I think it was one of those test match grounds that had kind of intimacy, really. And even when you were there for the county championship match, when there weren't particularly large kind of crowds, or if you went to a jump Player League match. I mean, there were some games at Trent's uh, uh, Bridge. Back in the 60s, early 70s, pubs were actually closed by about 1.30. And so the only place you could actually drink uh, during the summer months was if you went to a cricket match, really, unless you were part of a private club. The crowds were just outstanding. Mm. And I think that's the way, I mean, you can you can say to yourself, well, OK, so you quite like the John Player League, so you didn't um, moan about that particular part of one day cricket. But of course, the John Player League was played with a red ball. It was kind of... 40 overs, and it didn't disrupt the county championship. I mean, it, it, it kind of fitted in to the county championship because teams in those days would actually start a county championship match on a Saturday. They would play the Sunday League, usually with the, uh, usually against the same opposition. Then they would finish off the county championship on Monday or on their uh, Monday and Tuesday because it was a three-day competition. The Gillette Cup used to fit into the Wednesdays, apart from the final, which was obviously played on a Saturday. And even now, 2020, I mean it obviously has rearranged the kind of county championship season but, but when you get to the 100 that fundamentally changes cricket as a kind of old, and I suppose that that's what alarms me most of all really.
1: There's a line in, in the magazine piece that you wrote and you talk about the 100 and, and how it's been brought in and then you say and of course once the novelty wears off referring to the 100 it will still be too long for the impatient They'll demand something even shorter. And that, that's the worry, really, because we live in a bite-sized kind of culture these days. Rather than read a newspaper piece, you can read the headline and, and look at the photograph. Rather than read a book, read a, a 30-second interview with somebody, you know, to try and make people's lives easier. Everybody has this kind of bite-sized culture, fast food society. And cricket's heading that way, and that's a, that's a massive worry to me because, as we've said you know, the longer form actually is a, it's a real rich theme of cricket. It's, it's a little bit, I've compared it in the past, Duncan, to feature film as opposed to a TV advert. You know, the, the very best experiences of going to the cinema or watching something on the television are your Shank* Redemptions or The Godfather or a long form movie, which is an, an absolute classic, which you'll probably go back and watch again. You'll see some adverts on the television and some of them are quite good and some of them are completely throwaway and some of them you don't even understand. But you you take my point that the shorter something is these days, the better it is to a lot of people and that's not really the case, is it? And if it gets to be 100, it'll end up being 20 or 5 and it'll be 10-minute cricket. Well,
0: I mean, that is the concern. I mean, and that is my biggest concern about the fact that cricket, like so uh, so much else, is kind of always trying to appeal to people who don't like it. And that's what The 100 is for. It's for people who don't like cricket at the moment. And it's the way, and I'll I'll, I'll use the BBC as a perfect example here, because they are always trying to go out as newspapers once did for a youth audience at a point where a youth audience doesn't particularly watch the BBC, will probably never watch the BBC, because if they were doing anything that rather in the same way that I was doing it in my late teens and kind of 20s, I was actually out. I wasn't at home sitting sitting watching TV. And I think that the difficulty that cricket will have is that even if it appeals to the youth audience when the 100 is finally launched, it it, uh, then has to carry on appealing to that same kind of audience. And it's whether or not they can hold that same kind of audience. And if they can't, then we've got problems. They're putting the house, really, on everything, uh, because if it doesn't work, I dread to think where cricket might be in another 10 years' time.
1: How old were you when you went to your first cricket match?
0: Um, Well, of course, I'm only 21 now. um, (laughs) So let me see how old was I then. I shouldn't laugh, Uh, should I? I would have been eleven. I would have been 11 when I first went to my first cricket match, but I'd watched an awful lot of village cricket
1: before then. I'm going, to, I'm going to try and play devil's advocate, and it's going to be difficult for me because I, I agree with everything you say, but one other thing that um, the ECB might come back with is that this new audience, in inverted commas, that they, they say they've found or they say they know is there. In the, in the society that we live in, when there's football, there's um, cinema, there is computer games, etc., are appealing for everybody's attention. It's a case of trying to hook that audience in and bring it into your cricket ground or your football ground or whatever your business is, trying to get those into your doors, isn't it? And they're going to try and make it sexy, aren't they? And try and make the hundred sexy and to appeal to that audience. But I'm going to go against my devil's advocate here by answering my own question. But my comeback to that would be that trust in what you've got already. You know, it was enough to appeal to you when you were 11. It was enough to appeal to me when I was seven. I've seen kids that love cricket now. So the product is fine. uh, To me, it's how it's marketed and how it's sold to people.
0: They've never marketed the county championship for a start. If we could have got, or if the ECB could have got, the 2020 competition on either of the terrestrial channels, any of the terrestrial channels, then I don't think we would have had the 100. But but it is just too long, even in the age of the red button. It, It is probably half an hour too long for them to fill an entire evening with it for an entire afternoon with it. But I agree with you entirely. And, and I, I simply think that if they kind of re-looked at the 2020 and thought, okay, how can we get it onto one of the major channels as opposed to one of the satellite channels? What uh, more could we have done with the county championship that we might not be in this position? The thing is that if the 100 doesn't work, which competition are they going to invent to replace it?
1: Fed up of collecting your team's matchday subs? Worried about carrying cash post-COVID-19? Try SlateApp.co.uk. Less contact than contactless. Slate, the smartest way to collect weekly match fees and more. Download the app, SlateApp.co.uk. Not just for cricket, any clubs that collect subs. It just makes sense. Stick it on the Slate. SlateApp.co.uk. And They've spent that much money in it on introducing the 100 as well, which they have marketed... Some would say badly, but that money's been spent, and that yeah, you know, th- th- there was always a, a big pride when I whenever I went to ECB meetings, there was a, always a big pride at the ECB that they they had this slush fund, this this reserve that was in their bank account, which was there for a rainy day. And 2020, the year 2020, is a rainy day. It's a torrential rain, and they spent all the money on the hundred. So the money that they're, they're using to bail out counties and to try and keep things going. I'm not sure where that's come from, to be honest. And it's going to have to be paid back. And cricket isn't a rich sport. And I think, you know, you talk about gambling cricket on a roulette table, effectively. The, it's come down black when they've bet on red, hasn't it? This summer has been a massive problem because of the fact that they spent so much money already on, on marketing a competition that a lot of people don't actually want.
0: I think also, and I did a chapter on this in the book, because I wanted to do a chapter on village cricket hmm. and how important village cricket is to a community. I decided a week after the World Cup final to go and watch my village team. What interested me most of all was was not so much the match, but when I was a boy, if there was no um, cricket to watch either at Trent uh, Bridge or there wasn't any cricket on TV, then we would go and play. And we had one or two fields where we could go and set up some stumps and just play from literally morning to night, frankly. In the the village where I live, there's a very big playing field right at the top of the village, and I've never seen anybody play cricket there. And I walked through a week after the World Cup final, cricket has had all this exposure, and I thought, right, okay, I'm bound to be, I'm I'm bound to see somebody playing the game. Somebody, you know, the kind of age I was when I started to play. And there were people playing tennis on the courts, and there were people still playing football, and there were people throwing frisbees for their dogs, and there was not one person playing cricket. And that did really concern me, because obviously the World Cup final hadn't been shown on Channel 4, but of course it was, I mean, it is kind of one match alone, and most of all, we've got to try and get cricket back onto terrestrial TV.
1: As you say, I think the, the, it was the one-match nature of that. It was, it was a really good initiative, I think. And, and you know, I'd, I'd applaud anybody for getting that World Cup final onto free-to-air television. But just as a one-off, you, you need to invest in the game. In, in the same way that we've talked about investing in a four-day and five-day game and and committing the hours to enjoy the, the finale, you need to know a little bit more about cricket than just that one match, don't you?
0: You do, because the thing is that if you just pushed into a World Cup final, which actually also also clashed with the Wimbledon men's final if you're fascinated by it then you want to go and see more cricket either on TV or actually in person a week later there was only one 2020 game being held the following Saturday in the whole of England so essentially the closest serious match was in uh, was actually in India and uh, with people <laughs> <laughs> it was quite bizarre that the only thing you could watch on TV was the Indian Premier League. Yeah. And, of course, you needed a satellite dish for
1: that. Yeah, as you do for a lot of cricket these days. I mean, if if you have got the money and you can afford Sky and all the rest of it, you can pretty much watch a game a day, can't you? But I remember when I was a kid, I think I was being told by my mum it was a nice day, go outside. And I I turned the telly on because I was being stubborn, found a cricket match. And about three hours later, I was still watching it because I just thought I was fascinated by watching it on the TV. And then the next thing you know, you, you're asking for a cricket bat for Christmas and you're going down to the playing field, like you said, and you're playing with your friends and all of a sudden you've, you've developed a lifelong attachment to it. And th- those little roots in these days aren't there, are they?
0: No, and of course cricket isn't played um, the way it was in my day in uh, schools either uh, because um, they can't afford the upkeep for the pitches. Yeah. And um, there are more restrictions now on teachers when... Um, when they're taking children out of school so you need to sign so many forms and pass so many little tests and all those kinds of kinds of uh, things which is why i mean i'm really kind of grateful for an awful lot of village clubs or, or or kind of town sort of clubs in which um they kind of really have put an awful lot of work into the youth and kind of boys and girls sections because um Without them, I don't really know where tomorrow's cutters would be coming from. I mean, that makes me sound a bit gloomy, really, but I am—I just am concerned that um, that we're doing things about face, that we that we're kind of creating a new competition when we've already got existing competitions which aren't getting enough exposure.
1: It's almost like the third world dictator that builds a statue of himself in the market square but doesn't feed the, the population. It's, you know you, you need to build the building blocks of a game, don't you? And that comes from grassroots all the way up and, and through to the very top to Joe Root, who's the England captain. And at the moment, we are, seem to me, we, we're bringing in this new fancy competition that nobody quite knows where it fits and, and whether it's going to work or not. Spending all of the money on that... And not looking after the rest of the game.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it will be fascinating next season. Um, I mean, I don't really know still because you know, I mean, it's I mean the situation changes every day. Mm. Um, you know how much county cricket really will be really will be played because you don't know whether or not as um, as in a couple of towns lockdowns have to be reinforced, etc. And so I'll be fascinated next year when hopefully we'll be able to start from the beginning, as it were. So that there will be games in, that uh, there will be games in April. Whether or not people automatically go back to county cricket, or, or automatically turn to county cricket, I, I mean, there's always a difficulty because there are so many sports, and football is so is so kind of dominant, not only in people's thoughts but on the calendar. So that the football season never ends, and of course next year you could also have, you could also have the. European Championships, which are, which are kind of due to be played, you could have the Olympic Games, and and, and you could have other things, and so it's going to be a absolutely um, congested
1: summer. I said at the start of this interview that through lockdown I was dying for cricket to come back, but I'm a convert already, and you're a convert already, and probably a lot of the people listening to this podcast are converts already. It's the people out there who have other interests, isn't it? Who come out of lockdown, come out of COVID nineteen, hopefully in the not too distant future, and by that stage, they've they found something else to do. I mean, I, I am worried about cricket, and that's why a I set up a pose the hundred, and b it's changed into county cricket matters because we you know the eighteen counties that county structure that I grew up watching and and fell in love with. I I desperately want to see that maintained and preserved and looked after.
0: Yes, and I I mean I you know I mean, say in the book I think that um, the thing is that to exercise a decision about which of the 18 counties should continue to survive really would be the judgment of solomon because um you know we don't want to see any of the 18 counties no but you must ask yourself whether or not there are more counties in uh, than the kind of midlands could actually stand at the moment if for example county uh, county championship cricket goes on as it is and if all of the attention is kind of sucked from the championship into the hundred and uh, that. Entire sways of the season really are just blocked off for white ball matches. I mean, I would get to the point nowadays where, generally, in a kind of ordinary season, there are so many white ball internationals that I can't that I uh, that I can't remember them. Yeah, as soon as the last ball is bowled. Absolutely, it's, 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 they are there to serve TV because satellite T V s and uh, sports sports channels thrive on obviously
1: on live sport. Well they're there and, to serve and TV and they're new every day. And they're there to to earn some money for the ECB, aren't they? And that that's their prime focus and you know, you, I mean I've I've gone on to one day internationals and thoroughly enjoyed it. But like you say, you, you know, 2 years down the line if you ask me who was the top scorer or who or who did what, I would struggle to answer the question whereas a test match I could probably give you both elevens and probably read out half the scorecard failure accurately really two years down the line. you know it's that it's that kind of um, commitment and it's almost like revising for an exam isn't it? the longer you commit your mind to something the, the, the longer you remember it. Just um, going into your book, though, Duncan, um, and I'm going to give you a chance to really plug it now. And, I mean, I'm asking a three-times uh, winner of the William Hill Sports Book of the Year here to actually sell himself, and you shouldn't really need to do that. But if somebody buys this book, I've got it in my hands in front of me, what what should they expect uh, between the covers?
0: Well, I would hope a kind of lovely slice of summer and a kind of discussion about what uh, cricket means. And not only what it means to the ordinary club kind of member who goes to watch it but also its kind of place in English social history and in English social life I mean I I could not imagine going into a village that didn't have a cricket team for example yeah. and I couldn't imagine a summer without cricket and I don't know whether it's because I wrote a book last year on Neville Cardus, and because I did quote right at the end his um, is kind of belief that there could be no summer in this country without cricket. But I've now heard that, um, or I've read that, and I've heard that sentence so many times over the past four or five months. It's just been a convenient line for everybody to kind of use. But everybody who loves cricket the way that we love cricket will know exactly what he meant. And we will uh, agree with him. What we, what, what we disagree with the ECB on is how to get more people to actually be like us. Yes. That's what I wanted to do with One Long and Beautiful Summer. I said it's a little bridge into, from, um, the book, A Last English Summer. And I deliberately used the word summer twice because I do have a little summer series of cricket books, uh, possibly because summer's my favorite word and it's my favorite yeah. time of year.
1: Um, I'm just looking down the the list of the books that you've written and you kind of divide your time really, don't you, between football and cricket, almost alternate at some stage. Is is that, um, I mean, obviously they're two of your great loves in life. Do you kind of go from football to cricket and you think, I've done a couple of football books now, I should now write a cricket book? Or do they just come naturally to you? Do you get an idea and it germinates and all of a sudden the book's underway? Yeah, I
0: mean, it is really. I mean, I didn't write a cricket book between um, Last English Summer and a small book that I wrote called *The Kings of Summer, which was about Middlesex winning the title on the last day of the season against Yorkshire. And I deliberately wanted to write that just to capture one day, well, uh, kind of one sort of one sort of match. And then in the same year, I worked with Johnny Bairstow on his yeah. um, on his autobiography. And so I hadn't written about cricket for so long. And so when you um, when you've only been going and you've not been kind of writing about it. I also did a book about Eric Little, um, which is essentially for an American audience. and It, it, it meant that I spent two summers in uh, New York and Canada and places like that. I don't deliberately pick to do them one after the other or to have a gap. It's, it's, it's kind of just the way that they fall. I mean, I don't think, and I've said this to people, I don't think I'll write many more cricket books after this book. There is one I do particularly want to do, whether it comes off, I'll have to wait and see. But I think that the game is changing so much and I'm not particularly sure that I
1: want to change with it. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Well, Eric Little, the a fire guy, isn't he? What was the connection with him in America? Um, well, to be honest with you, um, I was particularly
0: keen when I did Eric Little, who, as um, who, who you may may not know, spent the war in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And lots of the people who were, uh, who were in the Japanese war camp uh, were from the U.S. And so I went over to oh, okay. go and interview some of them. And then I went over to Canada. Uh, his his uh, daughters all live in Toronto. So I went over to interview each of, each of them. Um, and it was a long job. I hadn't thought anybody, actually, would still be alive, or not many people would be alive, and, and who had served in the Japanese prison camp with him. Whereas, actually, the oldest person I interviewed was, at that time, 99, and he was fitter than I was. And the youngest person was in her early 70s, and that was the daughter that they never met. Right. So um, it was remarkable, really, that uh, so many of them were still fit and able and, and were desperate to
1: kind of talk. There's one that stands out for me on this list, and I, I didn't know you'd written this book, and it's The Unreliable Life of Harry the Valet, great Victorian jewel thief, which seems to be a bit of yeah, a... Yeah,
0: he, magnif- he was a magnificent jewel thief.
1: It's a bit, a bit of a kind of a, a step away from sport, though, isn't it?
0: Well, it is. Yeah, I mean, I just really wanted to do something different, mm. and and he was such an incredible character. I mean, he made millions many times over, but he had one fatal, fatal flaw. He actually kept on spending them, <laughs> yeah. so um, so he was so he was largely kind of largely kind of broke. I won't tell you what happened to him in the end, just in case anybody wants to buy the book. Suffice to say, it didn't sort of end well and, and didn't end in kind of well. Um, but he had an awful lot of fun over the years from essentially from the kind of um, mid to late 19th century into the early part of the 20th century. And he pulled off some of the most audacious crimes because he was a great kind of picker, pickpocket. And he was also one of the first who would use the, the guises and false kind of beards and mustaches and right. he would dress up and and, and he would make it
1: a real kind of sport, I suppose. That sounds really interesting to me. I think once my income returns post COVID, you might get another sale of that book because that <laughs> that does appeal. And off this off this list, I mean, you obviously started out writing about Nottingham Forest. If I was to put you on a desert island, it was desert island disc, and you could take one of your books to read to read again and, and to bring back memories and and all the rest of it. Would it be this current one? Because a lot of musicians say their current album is is their favourite because that's what's in their head at the time and uh, and they've moved on from the old stuff or is there a book from your past that you would take with you?
0: Well, there's certainly not a book of mine I would take because I never read them back. I mean... Have, you, have you got a favourite though? Uh, my favourite book is Neville Cardus. No, I mean, you're from, from, your,
1: from your back catalogue, have you got a favourite of yours? I think the-, the
0: best book I've ever written is actually called The Footballer Who Could Fly and that's about the relationship I had with my father and his love of football. But I think the book's that will probably stand the greatest length of time are a last English summer and one long and beautiful summer and I'll tell you why that is it's because in both of them what you're capturing is one summer it's rather like taking a whole set of photographs and in 20 30 40 years time someone will come back and they'll pick up this and it'll just be a kind of snapshot of life as it is now and to them it will be It will be a foreign country. And I wanted to go into that much detail with them, kind of both, so that it wasn't only about the kind of cricket, it was about the way that we lived and the fact that kind of trains often don't work and all those kinds of things. So it was me, I suppose, leaving or wanting, wanting to leave behind some historical record of what it was like to be watching cricket in 2009 and in. 2019
1: and if I could take you back to the 2019 summer what would be your your, your favourite day of that summer
0: um, I think actually one of my favourite days of that summer was the first, the first chapter when I went to um, Welbeck Colliery and I'll tell you why and it was the only day that was actually played it was a Sunday and it was surprisingly warm and it wasn't so much the match which wasn't terribly exciting really but it was the fact that the man who kind of built the ground had um, donated it to the club and he bought this land which had just been farmland and he turned it into a cricket ground and as you sit there you think to yourself and I don't know whether you get this James but there are times when I'll be on the kind of train going somewhere and I'll look across the field and I'll think goodness we could have a, a real, we could have a pitch there <laughs> do you know what I think. I what I think. think <laughs> then I start to think well where, what could I do I could take the pavilion from Trent Bridge I could take the line from Kent down at the, and, and kind of put it at Cowworth Corner. I could take the Gates Boards, and, and you suddenly have this kind of picture of uh, what your ideal cricket ground is. And that's what I do in the book. I just explain the little bits of each kind of ground that I know well that I would take with me. Things sort of not only inside the ground, but outside the ground too. So it's rather like the two sort of churches at, at Taunton, for example. And I think that was so kind of special that day at Wellbeck, because someone had actually kind of done it. They'd actually built their own their, their own creek ground. And I thought, well, I mean, goodness. I mean, I would love to have achieved that in life.
1: That's fantastic. There's two things I do when I look out of a train. I, I I look for places to put cricket grounds, just exactly like you've said, and I also try and fit golf courses on certain hillsides and things like that as I as I drive <laughs> past. But that, yeah, we, we have more in common than you think.
0: It, it just before... well, we're just as sad as each other,
1: really. <laughs> just before I let you go, I mean, you say you don't read back um, your own books and, and what have you, but would you be able to read me a passage of um, from one long and beautiful summer that just maybe gives a little bit of a flavour for the listeners?
0: I would love to, but I don't have it to hand. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> At this point you wouldn't believe it, but I've given away virtually all the copies I've got. I've just literally put one in an envelope for someone who actually helped me out with the book. And I've got to post and I thought, oh, I'm still waiting for publishers to send me a few more. Otherwise, I would love to do it.
1: Well, I won't read it out because I, w- I won't do it justice. So, uh, listeners, you'll have to actually buy it. And then you can maybe try and meet Duncan Hamilton and get him to read that passage to you, the, your favourite passage. But it's out now, One Long and Beautiful Summer. As I say, I've read the first couple of chapters. I will read the rest of it, and I actually will get your story about Harry the valet as well, because uh, that actually really does appeal to me. I like uh, the crime element of that as well. But this book is out now and available, I guess, in all the usual places? It is, yes. I I, um,
0: I signed, two uh, weeks ago, I signed 700 copies for um, um, Waterstones, and I hadn't realised what an enormous task that was going to be. <laughs> and so I started at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I finished at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I just collapsed in a heap afterwards. I couldn't type. I couldn't type, i could certainly couldn't hold a yellow
1: pen. When you were a young man, Duncan, and th- this will see if the uh, you know our similar t- similarities are the same. Did you practice your autograph when you when you had dreams of being a professional sportsman?
0: Oh, there were three of us at school, and we were always practicing our autograph because we also collected autographs. Yes, and we would uh, we would wait outside football grounds, and we would wait outside the Pavilion at Trent Bridge. We would kind of swap autographs, and we talk about autographs, and we would always practice our own autographs so that in one day, we hope, that we've been able to sign them, and I developed a uh, kind of very flamboyant autograph. And as I was signing all these books, I just thought I wish I'd done something simpler.
1: <laughs> yeah, just DH, <laughs> it'd have been much yes, better. Yeah, just
0: a simple kind of DH would have done.
1: Duncan, it's been fantastic to catch up with you, and uh, I wish you all the Where success in the world. I'm sure you'll uh, you don't need my good wishes for this. One long and beautiful summer available in all good bookshops online and all the rest of it, and well worth the purchase, I think. Duncan, thank you for joining me.
0: It's that Badger style.
1: Thank you very much indeed to Duncan for joining me on the Cricket Badger podcast this time. One Long and Beautiful Summer, A Short elegy for Red Bull Cricket. I've now finished reading it. It's an absolute cracking book and as you gathered from the podcast, I pretty much agree with everything he thinks as well. So once again, good luck to him with the book and thank you to him for his time. Hopefully that suit still fits. And thank you to you as always for listening. It is much appreciated. Your support of the Cricket Badger podcast over the last few months has been absolutely fantastic. The comments that I've got have been really heartening thank you so much indeed it couldn't happen without tvsportsblog.com and their support give them a follow as well on twitter at tvsportsblog and if you get some time I know everybody says this at the end of podcasts but it really does make a difference if you could just leave a comment leave a good review if you like it obviously if you don't then just kind of leave that page alone but if you do like the Cricket Badger Podcast anything you can leave in terms of comment or rating would be much appreciated there are plenty more Cricket Badger Podcasts to come just 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 around the corner. Thanks ever so much for joining me for this one, and I'll see you next time when I bring you the next edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network. 18 plus.